Bibles and turn with me now to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 is where we will be this morning. In our study of the book of Genesis together, we have been looking at the life of Abraham as it has been recorded for us in Scripture. We don't see every detail of his life, but we see an important record of key events and moments that teach us important lessons for a life of faith. Abraham is hailed in Scripture as a man of faith. In the New Testament, he is, he is praised for his faith. We read that he was justified before God through his faith. We even read that he was called a friend of God. What a description, that a man would be called a friend of God. And we learn in the New Testament that if we are in Christ, if we today are in Christ by faith, then we are, in a very real sense, Abraham's spiritual descendants. He is our spiritual forefather, and we honor him in that way as we look at his life. And Scripture honors him in that way. But it is also true that Abraham was an ordinary man. He was a sinner, just like we are, saved by grace through faith. Abraham was a man who had spiritually good days and spiritually bad days. Abraham was a man whose faith had great moments of victory and also humiliating moments of defeat, of weakness and failure. And as we follow the Genesis record of Abraham's life, we are seeing a spiritual work in progress. Abraham isn't finished yet. We're seeing a spiritual work in progress, not just for Abraham, but also for his wife, Sarah. And along the way, as we track their lives, we are learning important lessons. We are learning comforting lessons about what a life of faith really looks like. We are learning that believing God does not always make our days easy. We are learning that believing God does not always answer every question we might have, and it doesn't remove every weakness or moment of doubt from our lives. The life of faith is a life of progressive spiritual growth through many dangers and toils and snares, through many battles, battles won and battles lost. But in all of this, what we see most clearly in all of these moments of Abraham's life is who God is. Who God is and what he is like and what he is really up to in the lives of of his people, and we see why this God is so supremely trustworthy above all else in every moment of life. And one thing we learn from Abraham's life is that as we journey through our lives by faith, as we see life's good days and bad days, as we face the temptations and trials and struggles and disappointments of this life, we learn that what we need most is to turn our eyes and our hopes 
to this trustworthy God alone. To draw near to Him in a childlike faith, to submit our lives to Him in every way, to follow His leading through His Word and by His Spirit, to trust that though we are weak, He is able. And that He is not only able, but that He is willing and He is steadfastly committed to fulfilling every word of every promise He has ever made. And that He will complete the work that He has begun in us. And that He will bring us all the way home to our eternal home where we will see Him face to face forever. And we turn our eyes to Him by turning our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That's where this culminates for us. And all along the way, until our salvation is completed in glory, we learn also that God is just as able and willing and committed to forming godly character in us, to holding us fast and leading us in godliness all along the way, so that He is not just committed to saving us, but He is also committed to sanctifying us and making us like Christ, even here in this life. So that even in the midst of the troubles that we face in this world, we might be satisfied in Him. We might be settled in our faith. And we might show the goodness of the Lord to those around us by how we live. And we're continuing to see all of that developed in the life of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And we're seeing that throughout the book of Genesis. And as we come to our text this morning, which is Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, we see all of this on display again. Back in chapter 17, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, God spoke to Abraham some 25 years after making this original promise to him. And after Abraham has now been waiting for a long time, God finally speaks up and reassures Abraham that everything is going along just as it has been planned, and God is just as committed now to fulfilling the promise as he was when he originally made it. But Abraham struggled to understand how God could carry out such a magnificent promise, such a seemingly impossible plan. He struggled to understand why the timing was so long. And Abraham certainly couldn't foresee at that moment how God's plan and his promise was so great that the fulfillment would be even greater than he could imagine, that it would be through Abraham that, that the, the Messiah would come and the whole world would be blessed by the salvation that God was planning to bring. Abraham was having a hard time processing all of that and understanding all of that. But God in chapter 17 and in his great grace and in his patient care continues to reassure this struggling man that he meant what he said and that he is committed by his own covenant character to bring it about. He will not let it go. No matter how impossible the task might seem to men. Well, now in chapter 18, 
We don't find a passage that moves the story along to the next stage. We move laterally. Because we don't find new information in our passage before us today. We just find a shift in the focus. Chapter 18 is a lateral move. Chapter 17 was meant to be a gracious and faith-building reassurance to Abraham. And in the same way, chapter 18 is meant to be a faith-building, comforting reassurance to Sarah, who is also struggling with God's promise. And for those of us who are reading this account today, I believe this chapter is meant to fill in the glorious picture of who God is and how He works with His people and what He wants from us. You see, just like Abraham and Sarah, we also have a tendency to doubt God. Do we not? We also have a tendency to grow impatient with His working in our lives. We have a tendency to lose faith when our circumstances become painful or confusing or frustrating or slow or even impossible. What we need to hear is the message that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, who is a covenant-keeping God to His people, We need to hear what he has to say in this passage. And he says it straight up. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the question we need to wrestle with this morning. We need to see again and again that God is good and God is in control and God is fully trustworthy. Nothing is too hard for Him. And so we can, indeed, we must trust Him. We must follow Him. We must submit to Him and rest in Him. We must indeed be still and know that He is God. And we must devote our lives to Him, not to our own ambitions, not to our own pursuits, not to our own ideas or wisdom, We're not meant to take matters into our own hands. We are meant to trust Him. He alone is worthy of that trust. He alone is sufficient. He alone is the fullness of our eternal joy and our daily strength. That's what we need to see this morning. Every one of us, in any situation, in whatever it is that we are dealing with today, So, would you follow along with me as I read our text? Chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, 
three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. This passage begins with an unusual visit. Verse 1 tells us, The Lord appeared to Abraham. Let's not overlook that word and at the beginning. It is a subtle hint that this passage is carrying on what began in chapter 17. In other words, there hasn't been a whole lot of time that has passed, as we'll see when he talks about this time next year, as he said in chapter 17. I think it was days. I don't think it was a month. It could have been somewhere around there, but it wasn't long between chapter 17 and chapter 18. When we read about the Oaks of Mamre, that's where... Abraham had set up his tent. That's where he had been dwelling since back in chapter 13. But here's the emphasis. The Lord appeared to him. That's Yahweh. That is the, the covenant Lord, the, the, the ruler of heaven and earth. This is Yahweh himself who has come once again, and he meets with Abraham face to face. Now, how did all of that play out? Because God has spoken to Abraham in the past, but this seems a little bit different. So how did it play out? Well, the text tells us. It goes like this. The last part of verse 1 tells us Abraham had been sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. That's, from what I can tell, the time of day that everything would have slowed down a little bit. right? The heat of the day, that moment when it was time for a little mid midday siesta. Right, so I can imagine this Abraham, who's 99 years old, sort of sitting on a low chair in front of his tent, dozing off. Maybe there's a breeze that's coming through. Uh, there, he's maybe sitting in the shade of his tent, taking a little in-and-out type of nap, much like most of you will probably end up doing this afternoon. <laughs> but then in verse 2, we read that Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now don't think right in front of him, because he had to go out to them to meet them, but they were standing there close enough that he realized they were in his presence, 
and they were looking at him. He didn't hear them approach. I think it's possible they didn't approach. I think they may have just shown up. This is God after all. But they're close enough to look at him, and all of a sudden, there they are, in this countryside. They're not in the city. They're out in the country. And here are these three men just standing right in front of him. We read in verse 2 that when Abraham saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now, I'm not sure that at this point that is an act of worship. I don't know if he knows yet who these men are. We know that one of them is Yahweh, come in a, in, in a, a human form. And so we can assume that the other two are accompanying angels, I guess. I don't know if Abraham knows that yet. When he bows down, it is likely an act of hospitality and welcome and respect to these strangers who have come into his home. And then he says in verse 3, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Again, he says, O Lord, but that was also a common greeting, a term of respect. The word comes from the word Adon, which is related to Adonai which is a name of God in Scripture, but it is also a commonly used term of welcome and respect. The word means Lord or Master. It has the idea with it also of firmness and strength. And so while Abraham may not have yet meant it meant this term as a term of worship to the Lord, it certainly is fitting because this one who stood before him is the Lord and Master who has all strength and power. And we'll see this as the passage goes on. But Abraham greets these visitors with respect and welcome. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say this, Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. That turns out to be an understatement. That you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on. In other words, here, sit, relax, refresh yourselves, make yourselves at home, and let me bring you a little something to eat before you move on on your journey. And the travelers agree to stop and spend some time with Abraham, certainly because, as we will see, they had intended to be there and they had something to say. So at the end of verse 5, they say, do as you have said. And then in verse 6, Abraham's midday interruption becomes a midday interruption for the whole household, for Sarah and for all the servants involved. We read Abraham went quickly into the tent and he tells Sarah, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And we get the sense that there's urgency and and he's sort of demanding right here. No, you know, hi, honey, we have these visitors, but no, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then he runs out to the servant to get the, the, the calf and to prepare this meal. Abraham is frantic in his busyness. He is intense in his hospitality. He is quick to welcome these strangers in his home, and he has no hesitation of putting all his resources at their disposal. He has no reservation in hospitality and welcoming these strangers. And what's more, this is no small afternoon snack. Abraham calls for three seahs of flour. That, as I understand it, is something like 21 quarts of flour. Ladies, Now you know what I want next time I come visit your house. Just kidding. That's a lot of flour. This is a feast. 
And we also read in verse 7, Abraham ran out to the herd and took a calf. Tender and good. He gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. This is nothing like, you know, sticking a quick meal in the microwave or, or pulling out a couple extra cookies to give these guys as they travel on their way. This is a meal. This would have taken several hours to prepare. They were spending a considerable amount of time, and Abraham was giving up his afternoon siesta with quickness and intensity in his hospitality. And it's not just quickness and intensity, it is abundance. He is extravagantly welcoming these men into his home. And then we read in verse 8, he took curds and milk and, and the calf that had been prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That was common. The, the host didn't necessarily sit down and eat with the guests. He stood there and he watched them and waited on them to make sure that everything they wanted was given and that they enjoyed their meal. Now, why is that description here? Why don't we just read that God came and spoke to Abraham? What is going on here? Does this part of the story have any relevance to us? Well, all Scripture is profitable, we know that, so yes, it does have relevance. So what is it that we glean from this passage so far? Well, on a surface level, let's consider Abraham's example in the hospitality he showed to these men. And let's consider how he demonstrates the naturalness of a welcoming spirit among God's people. That's not the ultimate point of the story, but I think there is something to be learned here. It's a pattern throughout Scripture and in many different circumstances that God's people naturally are to be welcoming, gracious, hospitable people. That's just a natural part of the new character of a transformed life. In fact, Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 25 when he taught that welcoming one another is an indication of our attitude toward Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul straight up commands it in Romans chapter 15 when he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Yes, we all have different personalities and different gifts and different resources, so this idea is going to look different for all of us in different ways. And yes, it is not always convenient to be a welcoming person. But let's remember that convenience has never been a criteria for obedience. The question we must consider is this. In what ways are we actively striving to be a welcoming, hospitable, and generous Christian for the glory of God? I love that characteristic about our church how welcoming and gracious you are to the people who come in and interact. And I have loved, even over the last several months, to watch many of you reach out in generous hospitality and care for one another as needs have arisen. How are we pressing on to become welcoming and hospitable and generous people of God for His glory? That is a natural and necessary fruit of the new birth. Now, that's a surface-level application. I want us to go a little bit deeper. I want us to look 
at a deeper level and focus more centrally on what is in the text and consider the abundant grace of God that he shows here by condescending to be near his people and to have a close, intimate fellowship with them. This is the only time in Scripture prior to the incarnation of Jesus that God has a meal with a man. Any other time we see food offered to God, it is a burnt offering. And usually if God happens to be physically present there, he goes up in the smoke and disappears. We don't see God sit down and eat a meal with men. Not in the Old Testament, except for here. But here, God draws near to Abraham as a close and intimate friend. That's what this meal demonstrates. It shows us a characteristic of God in relationship to his people. It shows us that Abraham's God, who also is our God through Christ, is not a God who is merely far off and unreachable, but he is a God who is near, who delights to meet with his people, who delights to be in close fellowship with his loved ones. This is incredible condescension. This is wonderful love. This is great mercy and grace that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. That as John says in, in chapter 14, that, that, that Jesus even says that he would come and make his home with us and dwell with us. And it is an incredible gift that this God invites us to draw near to him and promises that he will draw near to us. Our God is a God who is close at hand. He is near to his people. He delights to be near his people. And he is always near. Now, God not only comes to Abraham and is near to him, but he has something to say. And that brings us to verses 9 and 10, where we see the promise that he wants to give yet again. So we read in verse 9, they said to him, that, that they is these three men, but no doubt the man in the middle is doing the talking and the focus is on him. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, this is where I suspect Abraham is starting to realize who's talking to him. That these are not ordinary men who have come to visit him. Why? Because these strangers refer to Abraham's wife by her name. And not just her old name, but her new name that was just given to her in chapter 17, Sarah. This was the name that God himself had given to her just a short time before. Now, with that in mind, here's where things get really interesting. They ask where Sarah is. They refer to her by her name, but they ask where she is. And Abraham answers, still in verse 9, she is in the tent. Okay, so here's my thought process. Here's, here's my question here. How did they know her name? I think it's because it's God who gave it to her. Okay, so if it's God who gave it to her, how does he not know where she is? She's in the tent right behind him, close enough that she can hear the conversation. We see that in verse 10. How does he not know? Well, I don't think it's that he doesn't know. 
I think he's directing his attention to Sarah. I think he's signaling to Sarah, who he knows is in the tent, who he knows is listening to the conversation. I think he's catching her attention because he's talking to her. That's what I think is going on here. He's reaching out to Sarah. We read she's listening in the tent behind him. We see that in verse 10. So I can imagine that the Lord here is speaking up a little bit, maybe even turning his head to make sure that she hears what he's about to say. That's what I think is going on here. So what does he say? Verse 10, he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's the exact promise that he just made to Abraham in chapter 17. He's doubling down. He's reinforcing what he says. And now, certainly, if Abraham hadn't already figured out who this was, he knows now, because God is the one who said this. And he gives the details of God's promise, even down to the timing from chapter 17. He has repeated his promise again. He has continued to emphasize his ability to fulfill what he has said and his intention to do it. That's why I said at the very beginning that this passage is not moving the story forward. It's a lateral move, sort of giving us a fuller picture. The difference between chapter 17 and chapter 18 here is that in chapter 17, the focus was on Abraham, and now I think he's talking directly to Sarah. Well, maybe indirectly, because he's still talking kind of to Abraham. Now, that begs the question, did Sarah not already know all of this? Some have suggested no, that Abraham, perhaps to protect her from greater grief because she had gone her whole life without having children, that maybe he just didn't tell her. I suppose that's possible, that Abraham was trying not to stir up these emotions again with her, but then Abraham had to have told her something because certainly she knew what her new name was. I think a better explanation of what's going on here is that Abraham had told her what God said, but that she was having a hard time believing it. I think that's consistent with the story because the same thing was true of Abraham. And God kept coming back to Abraham and reinforcing the promise to him. And I think that's what he's doing to Sarah here. So he's doubling down on his promise and he's doing it now for Sarah to hear. Helping her to see that he meant what he said, and he is able to do it, and he is intent on fulfilling every word. So that brings us again to consider what lessons we might learn from what we've seen so far in the passage. Once again, we see God's great patience with his people, with his people in, in their struggling faith. He knows what he has promised is impossible. He knows that, humanly speaking, we can't believe it. And so he keeps coming alongside his people and tenderly leading them and reminding them, yes, I know it's impossible, but I'm the God of the impossible, so trust me. Sarah struggles to see and believe what God has said. She will continue to struggle even after he says this to her. And God will indeed rebuke her, but he will do it gently. And he will do it lovingly. And he will do it for the purpose of, of helping her in her faith of cultivating her faith and encouraging her heart. So God is patient with the weaknesses of his people, even the weakness of our faith. 
And surely the psalmist's testimony applies to us when he says in Psalm 103 that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He reminds us that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so naturally we can't grasp them. And he shepherds us where we are. And what's more, in giving this promise, God also demonstrates once again that he is immovably committed to fulfilling every word that he has promised. You don't understand this, Sarah. I know you're struggling. But have faith. I will do. And you didn't mishear me. Everything I said, I will do the way I have said it. This is one of the key distinguishing characteristics of the one true God above all other gods. Flashing forward several hundred years to Isaiah the prophet, he testifies the word of the Lord in Isaiah 46 when he says, this is the word of the Lord. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. That, that means I am the one who is making all these things happen. And he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. He says, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I, will, I have purposed and I will do it. That is a defining characteristic of God. He says what he means. He means what he says. And he does everything he promises. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We saw this point last time we were in Genesis in chapter 17, that God makes unmistakably clear that he is able and he is willing and he is committed to fulfilling every promise he has ever made, every detail, every plan he has ever decreed, no matter how impossible it might seem to you and to me right now. He is a trustworthy God as well as being a sovereign and a good God. He is a patient God. One who gently calls us to believe in Him and leads us to that faith that settles us. Well, that faith is not coming so easily to Sarah. Not at this moment. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 gives us a little narrative comment to remind us that God's promise to Abraham that they would have a baby is humanly impossible. Not only is Abraham old, something Sarah makes abundantly clear, but Sarah is old. She's been unable to have children her whole life. And now she is way past childbearing years. 
This is an impossible situation. And so Sarah's response in chapter 12 is quite understandable, isn't it? We read, she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, this isn't the same kind of laugh that Abraham gave in chapter 17. That was a different kind of laugh. In chapter 17, Abraham's laugh was a laugh of, of joyful disbelief, if you will, of wonder that God would say such a thing to him and that God could bring it to pass. But Sarah's laugh was a laugh of cynical unbelief. I imagine it not being a ha-ha kind of laugh, but a sort of humph kind of laugh. Been down this road before. I've learned not to get my hopes up for such a dream. I know better than to fall for that again. You can almost hear the pain of her heart. Not wanting to talk about something like this anymore. She's been disappointed too many times. Now we learn something of ourselves, don't we? And of our human nature when we look at Sarah. And we consider her struggle here. Because the reality is, sometimes we lose sight of God and what He is able to do, don't we? As we have gone through the disappointments and trials and frustrations of life, we sometimes lose faith that God actually meant what He said or that God is actually able to do what He has promised. We lose sight of all of that because our vision is clouded by our sorrows. But we also learn something of God here, don't we? Something precious. We learn that God has something to say to those who are struggling in such a way. We learn that God has something to say to those who are struggling in their faith and in their spirit. That God has something to say to those who have been disillusioned by this life. To those who are worn out by life's disappointments and griefs. And that God has something to say, and not only that, but He is close at hand to say it. And that brings us to verses 13 to 15, where God speaks a word of rebuke to Sarah, yes, but also a word of reassurance to her. The Lord said to Abraham in verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now again, only God would have known what Sarah just said. Only God would have known about the laugh. No one else was around Abraham didn't even know this. But God who knows the heart knows what Sarah is thinking. He always knows what his people are thinking. And he rebukes her for sure, but what God says next shows us that this was a rebuke for her assurance, for her benefit. That he is correcting her attitude and he is shepherding her, stru her struggling heart. That he is preparing her not just to hear his promise, but to receive it and embrace it. So the Lord goes on in verse 14 to say what every one of us needs to hear in this moment. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Stop and consider. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is the central point of it all. That is the point that he wants Abraham and Sarah to get. That is the point every one of us needs to understand. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. Of course not. Not even close. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Abraham knows that. Sarah knows that. You know that. But we forget it sometimes, don't we? 
We do. When our lives are swirling in confusion and grief and pain, we take our eyes off of the all-powerful God. And God's answer to Sarah here, as it was to Abraham and as it always is to us, is not to explain every detail of, situation, of every situation, not to try to make us grasp every way of God. We can't do that. But his answer is to point to him and his character, to turn our eyes to him. That is the lesson that is so essential for us today. It doesn't matter what God promises or how impossible his promise might seem. It doesn't matter what circumstances he might lead you into. Nothing is too hard for him. And so if he promises it, rest assured he will bring it to pass. And friends, he has promised that if you are in Christ, he will lead you all the way home and there will be no harm that can overtake you. That will, that will pluck you from his hand and his, and his leadership. You will receive every aspect of your salvation because God himself has promised it to you. And he will uphold you, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is the lesson the Apostle Paul had to learn many times throughout his life. And he gives us testimony of it in several places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about his struggle and his affliction. And then he says how burdened he was beyond his own strength so that he even, in verse 8, despaired of life himself. But then he confesses in verse 9, that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. God who raises the dead. If God can raise the dead, is there anything in your life that's too hard for him? And so he confesses, on him we have set our hope. Or he testifies of his own struggle in the flesh in, in 2 Corinthians 12, that he pleads with the Lord to take this struggle away. Give me deliverance. But God says instead, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because it is God's power that is made manifest in man's weakness. And so Paul comes to the point where he gladly embraces the struggle so that God's grace would abound in him. How can he say this? Because he has learned and he has come to the full conviction that nothing is too hard for his Lord. And so as a result, though his prayer is for deliverance, that is not his ultimate goal. It is okay to pray for deliverance, but that is not the end all. Christ is. And whether in life or in death, what God's people need most to see is his power and his goodness and his trustworthiness. As we've seen so many times already, because he is the God of the impossible. So, the Lord again, in verse 14, reinforces his promise to make sure Sarah gets it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he doubles down again, triples down, I guess that makes it. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. I'm saying it, Sarah, this time next year, and you will have a son. It doesn't get any clearer than this, does it? Not Hagar's son. Not another handmaid, not, no, you. And I love that he says, at the appointed time. 
he isn't just predicting that this is going to happen. He has decided it's going to happen, and he's the one who's going to make it happen. Sarah, hear me. Abraham, hear me. It's as good as done. Why? Because I am God, I've said it, and there's nothing too hard for me. That's what God wants his people to see. You can believe this, not because you can tell me how it's going to happen, but because I'm God and I said so. In verse 15, Sarah denies that she laughed. She's fearful. She's embarrassed. No, 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 no. If you felt that way before, she's come face to face with her problem. But the Lord just says, no, but you did laugh. And then he leaves it there. What's he doing? I think he's telling Sarah, just wait and see. Just wait. Sarah, you don't have to explain this. You don't have to manipulate. Just wait and watch. You'll see. I meant what I said. I said what I meant. I'll bring it to pass. In the meantime, we see a couple more crucial lessons about God. We've, We've seen His incredible patience with the unbelief and the weakness of His people, right? Isn't that a blessing? Because I don't think there's a one of us that would say our faith is perfectly strong today. But the strength of our faith is not in the strength of our faith. It's in the object of our faith. And when the object of our faith is our loving God, He will shepherd us through even our doubts. And He will tell us, like He said to Sarah, just wait and see. Everything I've said, I will fulfill. You are safe in His heart. We also see here the glory and the power of God, that he is a God who makes impossible promises, and he calls us not to understand every one of them, but to believe, to trust him by faith, to follow him. And we can do this because he is God. Friends, are you discouraged today? Are you discouraged? I know some of you are. Are you grieving? Are you confused? Are you hurt? Are you suffering? Then lift your eyes once again to the God of the impossible. And remember that there is nothing too hard for Him. Are you worried about your future? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Are you concerned about the souls of your children? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Are you sick? Or is a loved one close to you sick and suffering? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Are you seeking deliverance from your struggle? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? To all of you, whatever burdens you're bearing today, is there anything too hard for the Lord? God is our refuge, and He is our strength, and He is a very present or near help in time of trouble. What's the conclusion of the matter? Beloved, be still, and know that I am God. That's what God invites you to today. And God will be exalted. He will fulfill every promise He has made. He is our fortress. 
And for those of you who are among us today who've never come to a point of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you today, lift your eyes to Him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-dependence. Turn from your unbelief toward God and believe in Him and trust Him. As the songwriter puts it, come every soul. By sin oppressed, there is mercy with the Lord. And He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. For Jesus shed His precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in Him without delay, and you are fully blessed. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Let's pray. Father, our faith is often so weak.